you've been in or around Christian circles long enough, you've heard it. I've finally found what God's called me to do. Now I've finally found peace, contentment, and happiness. Sounding more like an advertisement for a tech gadget or a beauty project than an actual description of a person's emotions about their vocation or their job. I'm Haley Gray Scott, and this is Christian Curious. Each week, we tackle some of the hardest, most pressing questions facing Christians in the 21st century. Today, I'm talking with Dan Steiner about the shadow side of calling. Dan Steiner is an experienced leader, coach, and educator with a demonstrated history of equipping leaders, team collaboration, and leading through change. With 13 years of ministry experience, He's an expert at leadership development, personal growth, and spiritual formation. He's passionate about equipping people to live their calling in the marketplace or the local church. His recent book, What is My Calling?, offers a biblical and theological exploration of Christian identity. Dan, welcome to Christian Curious. Thanks, Haley. Glad to be with you today. Dan, I've really talked a lot about the topic of calling on Uh, this show because it is such an important topic today. So many people feel rootless, purposeless, and um, they feel like they're, they're missing their calling. Um, In some ways it's hard to define calling. It's almost as like as hard as catching water through a sieve. So how do you define calling? Yeah, well, I I appreciate that question to start our conversation because I think there's so many assumptions we could unpack just from the observations you've made about calling and how we have culturally conditioned ourselves to think about what calling is and therefore then to operate in this life regarding that that understanding. Um, I believe calling is an invitation. Um, the, the term itself in, um, in the, the New Testament is, is what, what some scholars would call a participatory term. It's an invitation called to. And what is that thing that I'm called to, I'm invited to? It's a relationship with Jesus Christ, period. Um, the implications, the ramifications of that then are to live a certain sort of life. Um, Paul said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Speaking to the church at Ephesus, with all kindness and gentleness, humility, showing tolerance for one another in love. That was his understanding what it therefore meant to live a called life. So calling is an invitation, specifically an invitation to the person of Jesus Christ, um, and therefore to live a life marked um, by certain virtues or, or characteristics and qualities of what it means to be faithful to that calling. So that seems pretty distinctive from the primary and secondary callings that that people talk about. The primary calling is, you know, people describe it as the calling into a relationship to Christ. And mm-hmm. then the secondary calling is to a specific vocation or work. Yeah. So it's very yeah, distinctive that... from that. Um, in your book. Yes. You write. Yeah, it's very, very distinctive. Yeah. You write about. This is the shadow. This is sort of like leads to what's called the shadow side of calling. It creates an environment in which narcissists and predators and abusers can thrive. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I I think that's a really it's an unfortunate question we have to ask. 
Um, but I think it's also part of, of what has happened as a result of the way in which calling language has been used. Um, I think for the most part, when Christians talk about their calling um, related to a job or a task or a role, I think for the most part, they're very well-intentioned. They, you know, part of it is it's, it's just the waters we swim in. A fish doesn't know it's wet, and we really don't know anything other than talking about calling in that language. Uh, and so while, while some have great intentions as it relates to pursuing a particular occupation, a ministry, a role, et cetera, um, the, the shadow side of that well-intended pursuit means that there are those that can use calling as a trump card um, mm-hmm. to, to claim, God has called me to be a pastor. God has called me to be in a relationship with you. God has called me to, period. And who can argue with that? Who can argue with a divine anointing in that way? And in our book, um, where when we talk about this, this particular point, we use it in reference to um, a series of articles. I believe it was the Houston Chronicle and the San Antonio Express um, did a, a combined uh, long study of Southern Baptist churches in particular and found um, that there were unfortunately hundreds of um, cases of abuse within their churches. And one of the observations that one of the abused victims and then the authors of the articles made was that there seems to be um, a pattern in which a pastor in particular can claim a calling um, and nobody can argue with it. They can go into ministry, go from church to church, bounce from job to job, um, and unfortunately abuse the the misguided and uh, unreflective, unbiblically anchored thinking about calling. And people just believe it, and and they they end up being in these places, uh, doing a lot of harm under the auspices and the assumption that God has actually appointed them to that role. So yeah. that's that. I don't want to say that that's the normative way, but that is a reality, and I think that needs to be part of the conversation as we consider what it means to understand calling, talk about calling, and and live it out. Well, you know, just to draw down a couple of thoughts and draw it down to the personal level is, you know, number one, if you look at any list of, you know, top professions for narcissists, pastors, Mm -hmm. always on that list. Unfortunately, yes. And um, unfortunately, you know, it's ironic that, you know, it was the Houston Chronicle and what what other publication? I think it was the, the San Antonio Express. Okay, two, so, if I remember the newspaper name right, it was those two. So two Texas um, publications, you know, did this mm-hmm. study. And I actually am a victim of an SBC mm. pastor um, oh, wow. who did, you know, professed calling, very charismatic, very narcissistic. Mm-hmm. And um, he was able to go from church to church to church, um, abusing so mm. many women and continues to do so to this day, to my knowledge. Mm. And so under, under the guise of I've been called by God and he has the charisma. And so people equate that charisma mm. with, Oh, God has gifted yep. him and called him into this role, which is pretty, pretty damaging. I mean, it can lead oh, to, you know, when I was a kid, I, I really loved Jesus. Um, I've written about this a lot where I love Jesus so much. And yet then when I went to church, which was an SBC church, by the way, um, I saw the leaders and how they behaved. And it was so incongruent with the way Jesus behaved. And yet they said they were called by God. That eventually led me to atheism and then Mm. to agnosticism, which yeah. I believe is a, a bit further from athe- atheism, a bit further from God than atheism, because mm-hmm. at least with atheism, you're kind of engaging with it. So, you know, that's, that's the cost. You Absolutely. Know? That's the personal cost is 
You're, you can damage, personally damage hundreds of lives, you know, through, you know, sexual abuse. I've seen that mm-hmm. so, referenced so many times in my, you know, research with young adults is they say, mm-hmm. you know, hey, look at the pastors and the people that you put in leadership and yep. how they abuse their power. Why would I believe in something like that? Absolutely. And so those are two of the costs, the personal uh, cost of the victim and then the cost of faith in the in the church yep. as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, I thank you for sharing that Haley. I think that that, that is unfortunately affirming the very thing that I just stated, your own story, your own experience. And I, I don't have the same sort of experience, but I've got my own experiences having worked in three churches and taught at a seminary. Um, and I, I have very similar views towards organized uh, the organized Christian faith because of how leaders operate. And I think there is something that we need to, we, we need to start having more conversation about and not have the conversation dismissed in particular by Christian pastors and Christian leaders who conveniently can wield the power and the authority around those conversations. Um, but there is something about this calling topic that is, is functionally far more culturally conditioned than biblically rooted. And this is an example of the sort of outfall of, of bad hermeneutics, bad doctrine, right. bad, bad thinking, even if there is what we might call well-intended thinking, intentions are great. Just because someone's well-intended doesn't mean they're right. And these negative consequences are so drastic and so devastating. It's worth us having stronger conversation and being willing then to, to not just look the other way and try to pretend that, oh, it's not that big of a deal to talk about calling in this way. I'm, I'm a big proponent of, we just need to stop talking about calling in the ways that we have predominantly done it. We need to stop using the word in ways that we have predominantly done it. And in particular, pastors need to stop talking about their quote unquote calling to ministry. Um, for, for this and a number of other reasons, but yeah, we, we need to have this conversation. We need to think through the implications of it for the sake of what it truly means to be faithful as God's people. If that is our intended purpose to be faithful to that, which he has intended for us as his people. Yeah. Um, I, but one author that I've read co- describes, you know, the overuse of a word is habitual verbal promiscuity and we Ooh, are like we are bordering on that with calling absolutely um, overusing it to the point where it means nothing. So absolutely, but, absolutely. You know, another example of the shadow side of calling that you mention is, you know, the disappointment that people feel because they have unrealistic expectations mm-hmm. about yep. how God is going to work in their life. Um, what are these unrealistic expectations, and what is the danger in having them? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I'll, I'll, I'll speak from my own personal experience first, which will then reflect um, the, the myriads, I would say hundreds of other experiences I've heard from others as I've sat with them and heard their own stories. I grew up um, in a Christian home and when I went to church, part of youth groups um, back in the 90s. Um, I graduated from high school in 99. So I'm, I'm giving my, I'm 42 now. That's, that's, that's where I stand as it relates to um, my age and my generation and so forth. But the, I didn't realize it, but I adopted an understanding of what it meant to have a calling. No one ever gave a lecture, uh, a sermon. I didn't read a book on it, um, but I had an experience when I was in uh, between my junior and senior year of high school, where I sensed a quote unquote calling from God to become a youth pastor. 
Um, and I followed that calling. I, I disregarded the, the occupational goals I had at that time and where I wanted to go to school, went to a small Christian college up the road, got a degree in youth ministry, eventually got a job as a youth pastor. And every step along the way, the, the path towards success was affirmed and confirmed every single time. Therefore, I believed that was faithful to my quote unquote calling. Uh, until 10 years into my job as, or about 10 years into the job as, as a youth pastor, May 31st, 2012 is a very poignant date in my mind because that was the date that I was pressured to resign from that job because of a perceived lack of passion for that job. And there's a lot to unpack there, but um, I, I, in essence, was let go and and lost my calling. I, I no longer had a job as a youth pastor. And in particular, in that role, I was had been had worked through prior to my hiring specifically not just being called to be a youth pastor, but being called to that particular church. And as long as things were going well and I was making the paycheck and paying the mortgage and that health insurance and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, everything was great. And so this idea of calling um, met and following after my calling, all my expectations were met until they weren't. And I found myself after being let go from that job, uh, going through an incredibly difficult season of depression uh, and anxiety, not because I wasn't able to pay the bills, not because we weren't able to keep moving forward, but because I didn't know who I was. There was an incredibly dangerous sense of identity that I attached to my calling. And when that calling as a youth pastor to this particular church went away, so too did my entire understanding of who I was. And so all of the expectations and the assumptions about what it means to have a, have a, a goal. What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, or in this case, what are you called to go get a degree, have the degree, you get the job. After you get the job, you find success and you work your way up and everything's happy. Um, that works really well until it doesn't. Uh, and in my particular case, those expectations were completely blown out of the water, not by a, um, a divine undoing where God said, you're no longer called to this. And here's what I'm calling you to. It was a group of pastors and elders that, made a decision and that uh, undid the very calling, supposed calling that they had affirmed for, t for 10 years. And so I found out pretty quickly, um, calling actually doesn't work when it doesn't work. Uh, and so I didn't set out then to, to write a book on this at that point, but it became a part of my own healing process as I went to seminary and got around mentors and others that, that helped recalibrate my understanding of what it meant to be faithful. And that included a recalibrated understanding of calling. And as I connected the dots with my own story and my experiences, and then I sat with literally hundreds of other seminary students and others within fellows programs for uh, faith institutes and so forth, um, I came to realize there's something needed here um, where it's not just a matter of getting terminology right, um, but it's about the implications of having right thinking around important biblical doctrines. And in my own story, my expectations previously were completely unfounded by anything in scripture. And as I recalibrated my understanding, it opened up a whole new door of opportunity. So now my expectations around calling and my understanding of what it means to be identified with Christ are completely different, regardless of the circumstances in front of me. Are you ready to earn a master's degree, but concerned about fitting more into your already busy schedule? Visit denverseminary.edu to learn more about our fully online programs, financial aid opportunities, and more. The education you receive at Denver Seminary will challenge you to grow spiritually, intellectually, relationally, and professionally. Learn more today at denverseminary.edu. I really, you know, resonate with that sense of, you know, depression. And there's also a sense of loss of identity um, because you think, okay, I am called to do this. I mean, I, 
I know that when I was 18, I felt called to become a professor. And mm. so I did everything that you do, are supposed to do. I remember sitting with my friends in the back of a pickup truck at three o'clock in the morning after getting off our shift at Pizza Hut in Texas. And yeah. there were going around the back of the truck saying what we want to do. And I say, I want to, I feel called to be a professor. And they say, uh -huh. my friends were like, what do you have to do to do that? And I said, well, I have to get my BA and then I have to get an MA and then I have to get a PhD and then I have to find that professor job. And it came to be that when I actually did finish my dissertation, it was in um, 2010, right after the financial crisis, we mm -hmm. had been exiled to Michigan and I was pregnant with my second daughter and uh -huh. I got an offer for a full tenure track professor of leadership and spiritual formation. And I was, I sat with my back against the brick wall of my condo and I thought, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. This is not right. Mm -hmm. And my calling I really do is to be with my, my kids, to mm -hmm. be with my daughters. And so I actually turned down that professor role and another yeah. one has never popped up again. Um, yeah. So did you miss your calling, Haley? Did I you did. Miss it? I guess I did. <laughs> or did you hear something wrong before? And I don't ask, I ask because these are the questions that I've had to ask myself and I've had so many ask me, you're no longer a youth pastor. Right. No, I went and got a job as a small groups pastor. And then I, after getting degrees, I got a job as a professor and now I'm a part-time leadership coach slash uh, eBay sports card flipper slash photographer slash <laughs> fill in the blank, whatever. I'm, I'm in the gig economy. Right. Did I get it wrong when I thought I heard God's calling in my life the summer between my junior and senior years of high school? I don't think I got it wrong. I think I had a significantly, for me, miss, miss, um, a misunderstanding of what it truly meant to be faithful as a Christian. That's recalibrated over time. Right. But I sat with so many Christians who look back, and that's part of the, the joy now is I have these conversations. I've spoken in churches and with groups. The, so many people live with the fear that they have, quote unquote, missed their calling because they've never found whatever that one thing is. And I love telling those people, you never missed it. Right. You, you haven't missed it. You chose to be faithful with what was most important for you in front of you in that season of life, even though you found an opportunity to fulfill what you had wanted to do sitting on a back in the back of a, a pickup truck in Texas years prior. Yep. That is, you know, that's very well said. I mean, and it does bring a sense of relief and a balm to people who, mm. who feel like they, oh my gosh, I messed up. Oh my gosh, I made a mistake. Oh my gosh, who am I? Um, that when we hold on to that, that sense of calling as our, of a particular vocation and then mm -hmm. the doors as C.S. Lewis, who is right mm -hmm. behind you, and <laughs> right that picture, behind he would say something like the door slamming in your face. And, yeah. um, you know, Coldplay says that too, um, by the way. Oh, love Coldplay. They, 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 they've been a balm to my soul over the years too. <laughs> but um, yeah, that is definitely a balm um, mm -hmm. for people who, who do have that understand of calling. Um, where do you think that this idea of calling equals happiness originated from? Because, yeah. you know, as I've mentioned before on the show, I mean, you know, God can call us to Nineveh. God can call us to Golgotha. God can call us to places where we don't want to go. And our calling doesn't necessarily make us happy. 
I mean, mm-hmm. it can lead us to a cross. Um, it can lead us to very uncomfortable places. So where did this idea of calling equals happiness come from? Yeah, I, so in, in the book, uh, one of the chapters that I wrote, Bill and I split the, the workload. So he wrote three and I wrote three. One of the three that I wrote um, was the history of calling. Look in the rearview mirror, um, because it's a really interesting study when we go back to not just the biblical, the biblical account, which is the third chapter in the book, but then starting with the early church and then moving forward through the, the major movements of church history uh, with the medieval era, the Reformation, and now the modern church. It's fascinating to watch um, the church's understanding of, of calling go back and forth like a pendulum swing. Uh, the early church fathers saw calling uh, as it relates to an invitation to Christ and to therefore live a certain sort of life in Christ. And then you have this, this movement in the medieval era towards um, monks and nuns and priests and the, the religious types, the formal religious um, roles and occupations became vocations. So it was for the, the quote unquote special few that were um, pursuing those roles that became sacred ministry. And then Luther comes in the Reformation and says, no, wait a second. It's not calling is not just for those that have a religious role. It's for those that are working in any station in life, regardless of your occupation. Uh, and he's speaking out of a, a, a time when, when there's a completely different economic and social system in Germany than we have in America today. And so he was affirming the baker, the candlestick maker, the miner, everybody, and even the most menial and, and lowest supposed of occupations. Uh, and then we have this movement back towards formal ministry becoming a calling in the 20th century. Uh, and, and especially in the last 30, 40 years, we see this, this huge swing where you can't go into ministry unless you have a calling. Even many denomination, denominations to this day have, have calling committees, and they want to know what is your calling to ministry because uh, you can't enter this unless there is some divine appointment. So we've had this back and forth movement. Um, but what's happened is we've, we've moved in, into this era where calling is associated with formal pastoral ministry or has been. Um, it's also aligning with this uh, similar sort of, or not similar, but a, a cultural movement in which your sense of identity and occupation are in worth are, are wrapped up with an occupation. Uh, so think of, you know, when you're a kid, what, what do we ask our kids or what were we asked when we were kids? What do you want to be when you grow up? This very sense of being was attached to a, a particular occupation or a job. Um, you, you were expecting a child to answer that question. What do you want to be when you grow up? Or if you were asked that question, you were expected to answer with some cool job, like an astronaut, or I want to be a doctor. For me, it was, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to, I want to play baseball for, for the San Francisco Giants. Growing up and living in California at the time, that was my favorite team. So th- th- there's this attachment to an occupation and a cool occupation at that from, from, from very young. But then when we get old, we don't ask, what do you want to be when you grow up in social settings? We go and we ask somebody, what do you do? What's your name? And what do you do? Those are the two questions I'm armed with as a card carrying introvert. Whenever I go into any social setting, which I don't know people. And when I ask somebody, what do you do? Or I'm then asked, what do you do? There's an assumed conditioned response we are supposed to give. And that is related to our gainfully employed situation. It's not, what do you do on Tuesdays? What do you do for fun? What do you do when you're bored? It's what do you do for work? So think of that being, what do you want to be when you grow up? And what do you do as an adult? This whole reality of identity and activity specifically related to work have been conflated with one another. And so as Christians, it's been very easy for us to fall in line with that cultural 
focus, especially when the opportunity for gainfully employed paid ministry work is on the table. I can go get a degree and then I can get a job with a full-time salary, or at least this was the, uh, uh, I mean, more so of a case a number of years ago. Um, but we carried this, this idea with us conflating, um, uh, an understanding of ministry as a calling by God and then a cultural, uh, focus upon occupation being wrapped up with identity. And therefore, this idea of success and happiness is found when you are faithfully living out your calling and when it's working, when it's going well. And so therefore, to, to attach happiness with calling, I think, is far more culturally conditioned than it is um, biblically anchored. And it's just a reflection of how as much as we try to be countercultural or need to be salt and light in the culture, we've actually adopted and, and conflated for ourselves cultural realities as opposed to standing upon biblical truth especially as it relates to something as important as calling, which gives us motivation and compulsion to go and do particular um, types of work and fulfill particular roles. Uh, I don't know if there is a stronger word other than the name of Jesus Christ that has, has, uh, that has pushed people to change their lives, to quit jobs, to go back to school, to move across the world, to fill in the blanks. This, this notion of calling is incredibly powerful. Um, and back to my original definition at the beginning of, of our conversation here, um, if calling is to a person, is to Christ, that is never going to change. And true happiness in a, in a, in a Christ-like sense is not found in a paycheck or is not found in a particular economic status, but is found in being faithful to him in whatever conditions we, we may be in. So I know there may be a little bit of a longer-winded answer, but I think understanding the history of where we come from so that we know why it is that we are thinking the way that we are um, is an important part of unpacking that, but um, I think that's that's my my answer as to why happiness and calling have have often been equated. Yeah, I think it is also it becomes really entangled with the American dream, doesn't it? Mm. Where you health, know, health, wealth, prosperity—that's the assumed given. Yeah, you go, you find your passion, you get your job that you love, you are able to pay your mortgage, you get. You know, you get married, you get 2.5 kids, a dog, a cat, whatever kind of animal you want, and then you get your pension, you get to retire, and that's the way that life is supposed to go, and then until it doesn't. And the then, ungivens of life are far yeah. more um, the norm than the yeah. supposed givens that we often live with. But the idea of being called to a person provides a great more stability than, than just the calling to a vocation. Um, so if people want to find your work, where can, where can they pick it up? Yeah. So uh, the, the book itself, what is my calling a biblical and theological exploration of Christian identity can be purchased on Amazon. Um, so search for what is my calling? Um, my co-author Bill, William Klein and myself, um, you can search for our names, Daniel Steiner, William Klein, and you'll find the book. Uh, I also have, um, fo focusing a lot on my photography, um, sojourner.photography is my, mm -hmm. My website. Um, there's also a link there for some of the leadership coaching that I do, um, so you can find me there. And um, in, on Instagram, the Visual Sojourner is my my handle. So I'm fairly active there, and like connecting with people and um, and whatnot. As photography and now videography are a big part of, of what I do. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about calling. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Christian Curious with Dr. Haley Gray Scott. Join us next week to hear more about how we can better understand calling 
as Dan Steiner joins us again. As always, send your questions and comments to Haley at ChristianCurious.com and visit our website at www.ChristianCurious.com to find more shows and find out more about us. That's www.ChristianCurious.com. Stay curious. Thank you.